Hello and welcome to Killing Time, a military history podcast for non-military listeners about battles and conflicts that change the course of history. host Chip Wagar and today we're going to talk about the Battle of Gettysburg but before we do don't forget to visit our website www.killingtimepodcast.com to learn more about the battles that we're featuring on this podcast series to get on our mailing list and to comment on what you like and what you don't like about these various podcasts on this series. Also, don't forget that our website also contains maps, which are very important in any military campaign to fully understand the maneuvering and positioning of the armies, which is so important to understanding the outcome of these battles. In the pantheon of American military battles, The Battle of Gettysburg is, in my book, the number one battle in our history to date. In terms of sheer numbers of casualties, it's fourth in rank, with over 45,000 dead and wounded over three days of fighting. Killing time, indeed. In terms of impact on the arc of history, well, consider what if the Confederacy had won the battle. Would the Civil War have ended with the independence of the Confederate States of America? It well might have. And how different our world would have been, if so. It's impossible to assess the significance of the Battle of Gettysburg in American military history without first placing it in context. In July 1863... The war had been going on for over two years. While the Union armies in the West had made halting but steady progress, which would be crowned the day after Gettysburg with the fall of Vicksburg, the duel between the Union Army of the Potomac and the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia was the main theater of the war, and everyone knew it. Here the Confederates had repeatedly repulsed the Federal Army time and again, almost always with inferior numbers and equipment. There was Bull Run on July 21, 1861, in which the Confederates had stunned the Union Army in northern Virginia. The Seven Days Battles in June of 1862. The Second Battle of Bull Run in August 1862 the disaster at Fredericksburg in December 1862. But none of these battles was more devastating than the complete rout of the Union Army at Chancellorsville in May of 1863. This battle has often been called by military analysts and historians as Lee's perfect battle. 
The Union Army was 134,000 men strong, led by General Joseph Hooker, and yet it was decisively defeated by Lee's Army of Northern Virginia, with only 61,000, less than half the size of the Army of the Potomac, as a result of Lee's brilliant and daring tactics. The route that followed sent the Union Army reeling back north in disarray and left Lincoln and his Secretary of War Halleck in stunned disbelief. The blow to morale and confidence in the North was far worse after those defeats than any injury to the North's ability to make war. Morale could not have been lower after Chancellorsville in the North, nor higher in the South. In fact, One can almost say that the Confederate victory went to their heads and was partly responsible for a change in strategy that we'll talk about in a minute. Gettysburg was the second and final time that the Confederacy went over to the offensive to win the war and actually invaded the North. The first attempt had been repelled at Antietam ten months earlier, in September 1862, when the Union General, George McClellan, had intercepted Confederate General Robert E. Lee's operational plans before the battle. For most of the Civil War, before and after Gettysburg, the Confederacy had adopted a strategy similar to that of the American colonies in the Revolutionary War, persevere and wear down the willpower of a superior military force until it gave in. The territory of the Confederacy, like that of the American colonies had been to Britain, was so vast that it could not be taken and held for long by military power alone. This was a time when field armies of at most 120 or 130,000 men were maneuvering in a continental state far less urbanized than today, especially in the South. Armies could often avoid battle until they were good and ready, breaking contact and retreating into virtually limitless spaces. This static strategy was in contrast to that of, say, Napoleon, or Germany's von Molke, as we have seen in earlier podcasts. When facing an opponent superior in economic, material, and manpower to their own country, They summoned up every ounce of military force they could gather as quickly as possible and gambled everything on one throw of the military dice. Their idea was to inflict a devastating defeat before their opponents could organize and bring overwhelming resources and manpower to crush them. Perhaps this strategy was compelled by the relatively smaller amounts of territory in Europe, where there was really little space to hide as compared to the American landscape of near-infinite space. In the South, the local population could and often did support the Confederate forces with food, shelter, and information, so that for the most part the southern field armies did not have to worry much about supply lines and communications and could sort of float freely in the countryside. That would change when Lee invaded Pennsylvania after his crushing defeat of the Army of the Potomac at Chancellorsville. Instead of the customary support he and his officers were used to receiving, the presence of the Army of Northern Virginia aroused the countryside 
and motivated the North. Gettysburg produced many mysteries, many whys and what-ifs that remain unanswered to this day. The first of these is, why did the South change strategies after Chancellorsville and opt to go over to the offensive? There were other opinions on what to do at the time. Lieutenant General James Longstreet, one of Lee's best commanders and a confidant, had other ideas. He had fought with Lee in numerous battles and campaigns and was a corps commander in the Army of Northern Virginia. Longstreet was a strong advocate of staying on the strategic defensive and even sending two divisions of the Army into Kentucky to try to strike back at the Yankees who, under Grant and Sherman, were about to take Vicksburg in the West. Longstreet felt that this would compel the Yankees to pull back or risk being cut off from their supplies or losing a slave-holding border state like Kentucky to the Confederacy. But Lee eventually decided to invade the North, went to Richmond and received permission from President Jefferson Davis and his cabinet to do so. Why he did this will never be truly known. So let's talk a little bit here about Robert E. Lee. What was he really like as a person and as a general? Lee was one of the few commanders in the Civil War not to write any memoirs before his death in 1870, five years after the end of the war. Grant's memoirs, by contrast, became one of the greatest national and even international bestsellers until fairly recent times. Accordingly, we can only glean what was in his mind from his contemporaries and what few letters and notes he left behind. In his biography, Robert E. Lee, Roy Blount, Jr., describes Lee as a man of competing impulses, a paragon of manliness, and one of the greatest military commanders in history. Lee had thought it was a bad idea for Virginia to secede, Blunt stated, and God knows he was right. But secession had been more or less democratically decided upon. Lee's family held slaves, and he himself was at best ambiguous on the subject. He had famously declined Lincoln's offer of command of the Army of the Potomac at the outset of the rebellion, and when Virginia reversed its prior rejection of secession and voted to join the Confederacy, Lee resigned his army commission of 32 years and offered his sword to his native and beloved Virginia. Again, Blunt notes that Lee himself probably never drew human blood nor fired a shot in anger. His only Civil War wound was a faint scratch on the cheek from a sharpshooter's bullet, but tens of thousands of men died quite horribly in his battles. As battlefield generals go, he could be extremely fiery in the thick of a fight, but could go out of his way to be kind as well. A fastidiously polite and cultured man descended from Virginia aristocracy, distantly related to George Washington himself, Lee was a quintessential gentleman. Surprisingly, though, for a military commander, Lee was not, in fact, good at telling men what to do. That no doubt suited Confederate generals under his command rather well, because they often resented authority. 
Fitzhugh Lee, Robert E. Lee's adoring nephew, would write later that his greatest weakness was his, quote, reluctance to oppose the wishes of others or to order them to do anything that would be disagreeable and to which they would not consent, unquote. Instead, his authority derived from his almost Olympian air, his politeness, and unimpeachable projection of chivalry and honor. He normally displayed to the outside world a cheerful demeanor, but his family and friends knew that the outward bonheur disguised deep and often repressed feelings. At Gettysburg, he was described as uncharacteristically jittery and snappish. He was 56 years old and bone-weary. President Lincoln dismissed the disgraced Joseph Hooker as commander and replaced him with a taciturn Gordon Meade on June 28, 1863, only four days before the Battle of Gettysburg began. In the meantime, Lee had struck so deep into Pennsylvania that his forces were literally located on the outskirts of the Pennsylvania state capital of Harrisburg. And in those days, Harrisburg was a significant training center for the Union Army with tens of thousands of troops passing through Camp Curtin. It was also a major rail center and a vital link between the Atlantic coast and the Midwest, with several railroads running through the city and over the Susquehanna River. Richard Ewell's Second Corps approached Harrisburg in June 1863, while a division under Jubal Early planned to cross the Susquehanna River and attack Harrisburg from the rear. After the capture and occupation of Harrisburg, Lee generally intended to circle back to the east, menacing or taking Philadelphia, Baltimore, or Washington, D.C., in a maneuver that he knew would surely involve a major engagement with the Army of the Potomac he had so recently and so soundly beaten. But that was in the friendly territory of Virginia. On June 29th, Lee ordered Ewell to pull back from Harrisburg, having belatedly discovered that the Union Army of the Potomac was closer to his forces than he thought, and this marked the farthest northern advance by the Confederacy during the Civil War, although, of course, they did not know that then. Lee had been hampered almost from the moment he entered northern territory by poor intelligence. The northern army was, he knew vaguely, to his east, but it had long broken contact with him and he with it. And as the days wore on, Lee nervously groped into the unfriendly interior of Pennsylvania, at that time the second largest of the northern states. Lee's poor intelligence and quick striking power was further degraded by the detachment of a huge rebel cavalry force under the command of the legendary Jeb Stuart. This situation is often mentioned but little understood when it comes to explaining the cause of Lee's defeat at Gettysburg but it looms large, in my opinion, as a major cause of the Confederate defeat. So let's start the campaign with that. Lee took about a month after Chancellorsville to refit and gather his army together, about 72,000 strong. It was during this time that the decision was made to invade the North, rather than stick with the strategy of fending off blows from the Army of the Potomac until it was worn out. Instead, a Napoleonic-style grand campaign was envisioned 
ending with the knockout blow. The Army of the Potomac would have to fight if the Confederates threatened three of the North's largest cities, including the capital, Washington, D.C. And so it began. On June the 3rd, Lee began concentrating his forces at Fredericksburg. Following the death of Thomas Jackson, known to history better as Stonewall Jackson, Lee reorganized his two large corps into three new corps, commanded by Longstreet, the first corps, Lieutenant General Richard Ewell, the second, and Lieutenant General A.P. Hill, the third. Both Ewell and Hill had formerly reported to Stonewall Jackson as division commanders and were new to this level of responsibility. The cavalry division remained under the command of Major General Jeb Stuart. The Federal Army, still under the command of Hooker at this time, was concentrated across the Rappahannock River from Fredericksburg, shielding any northern advance by Lee into Maryland. Now, the Rappahannock is one of several rivers in northern Virginia that flows from west to east into the Chesapeake Bay. It's a massive, wide inlet at its junction with the Chesapeake, but by the time it reaches Fredericksburg, it's quite narrow indeed, not much of a barrier at all. Today there are two bridges that cross the river, but infantry and cavalry in 1863 could easily have forded the river, proceeding north along what is today U.S. Route 1 through Falmouth and on into Maryland. Hooker and the wounded Army of the Potomac dug in on the northern side of the Rappahannock, licking their wounds and their pride, while blocking the northern progress of the Army of Northern Virginia forming up to the south. Lee, however, quietly and adroitly shifted his forces first to the west and then north up the Shenandoah Valley. He broke contact with the Union Army, and for about a week the bulk of the Army of the Potomac sat in and around Falmouth. On June 13th, realizing that it was no longer facing the Army of Northern Virginia or blocking anything, the Army of the Potomac broke camp and retreated in a northerly direction toward Leesburg, Virginia, as the Army of Northern Virginia crossed into what is today West Virginia around Winchester on June 17th. So, if you can imagine in your mind's eye, the two armies were marching more or less in parallel lines to the north with the Army of the Potomac always between the Army of Northern Virginia and Washington and Baltimore. Around Aldi, Virginia, on June 17th, however, Jeb Stuart was instructed by Lee to cross the southern wake of the retreating Army of the Potomac and position himself to the east of the Army, between the Army of the Potomac and Washington, which he did. 
about 10,000 fast-moving horse cavalry found themselves on the outskirts of Washington, D.C., causing a panic there. So far, so good. Stuart was distracting Hooker and the Federal High Command, but while Jeb Stuart's cavalry was a formidable force indeed, it was not so great in number that he could penetrate the fortified defenses and garrison at the capital or do any real damage there. He could and did capture loot and provisions in the unguarded roads in Maryland and Pennsylvania. But in the great scheme of things, as we will see, his raiding became not only pointless, but actually did real damage to the Confederate campaign. Now largely out of contact with Lee, whose forces were driving deep into Pennsylvania around Chambersburg, Stuart continued raiding, heading further north and east to Westminster, Maryland, then to Manchester, Maryland, and then on to York, Pennsylvania. Lee began to regret his decision to let Stuart run wild in the east. He had virtually no cavalry and would not see Stuart again until late on the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg. Further aggravating him, he could not communicate with Stuart to summon him back to the main body of the Confederate Army due to the distance and the fact that the Army of the Potomac was located between them. To Herker's credit, chagrined as he was by his defeat at Chancellorsville, he didn't take the bait offered by Stuart's marauding cavalry division to his east and kept his own army intact. It's difficult to overstate the impact that approximately 10,000 horse had on a field army such as Lee's. Not only did it amount to approximately 14% of his entire manpower by sheer numbers, but the functional impact only cavalry could provide was entirely lost to Lee. Reconnaissance, communications, the shock value of cavalry on the battlefield and its ability to quickly encircle and devastate enemy units. Instead, Lee would engage a Union army with cavalry capability, with only infantry and artillery himself, at least for much of the battle, a recipe for disaster that would begin to become apparent almost immediately. On July 1st, the first day of the Gettysburg Battle, Stuart was approaching Carlisle, Pennsylvania, some 44 miles away, oblivious of the fact that the battle that would decide the course of the campaign had already begun. Thirty miles in a day is a hard day's ride for a horse. Even when Stuart realized what was happening, he had to spend an entire day closing in on the battlefield at Gettysburg and only arrived late in the afternoon for the third day's fighting and what was accomplished on Stuart's ride? Virtually nothing. Raiding and havoc, yes, but these were of ultimately no real importance. Had Lee enjoyed the benefit of Stuart's massive, quick, and hard-striking cavalry, at least by the 30th of June, things might have been very different. When, on the afternoon of the second day, Stuart did show up at Gettysburg, after pushing himself nearly to exhaustion, Lee's only greeting to him is said to have been, Well, General Stuart, you're here at last. A coolly devastating cut. Lee's way of chewing out someone who he felt had let him down. Nothing more neatly conveys the personality of Robert E. Lee than this little vignette. His repression of inner feelings, dislike of confrontation 
with subordinates, superiors, or just about anyone marked him as a commander. As it was, Gettysburg began as what military analysts call an encounter battle, a combat action that occurs when one force, incompletely deployed for a battle, engages an enemy force unexpectedly. These kinds of engagements are like two people in a dark room, vaguely aware that the other person is somewhere nearby, who bump into one another and start flailing away. In this case, Confederate Brigadier General Johnston Pettigrew's brigade approached Gettysburg from the north on June 30th, looking for supplies in the town of Gettysburg. And here, oddly enough, the position of the two armies is the reverse of what it usually is. The Confederate army approaches Gettysburg actually from the north and the Union army from the south. In any event, the Confederates noticed Union General John Buford's cavalry division approaching and entering Gettysburg from the south and occupying the city. Pettigrew withdrew without attacking and reported his observations to his corps commander, General A.P. Hill. Hill decided to send in a sizable detachment the next day in a reconnaissance in force. On July 1st, at 5 a.m., the fighting began. Buford had been busy in the meantime, organizing his inferior cavalry division just to the north and west of Gettysburg, who now received the assault by much superior Confederate infantry and artillery. Here again, the missing cavalry force under Stuart hurt the Confederacy. They could not easily or quickly flank or encircle Buford's forces, who delayed their advance. Buford stubbornly hung on that first day, stalling the Confederate attack for hours until the Union First Corps under General John Reynolds arrived north of town at around 10.30 in the morning. Had Stuart's cavalry been available, it could have been deployed to sweep around behind Buford's division, engaged on its front by part of Hill's Corps, and forced Buford either to retreat or be encircled and destroyed. As it was, Buford was able to keep Confederate General Henry Heth occupied, knowing that he could always retreat into Gettysburg itself and then further south to the heights afforded by a series of ridges and hills whose names would become famous in American military lore. Cemetery Ridge, Cemetery Hill, and Culp's Hill. So on the first day of battle, to envision this in your mind's eye if you don't have a map, you have the Union forces arrayed in a sort of arc from the 9 o'clock position to the 1 o'clock position to the west and north of Gettysburg, which had been occupied by the Union cavalry the day before. Reinforcing units, the 1st Corps under Reynolds' command, approached from the 6 o'clock position, the south, followed by the Union 11th Corps under General Oliver Howard. Confederate forces under Hill and Ewell entered the fray from the northwest and the north. In all, about a quarter of Meade's army, about 22,000 men, would be engaged against about a third of Lee's army, about 27,000 men, 
as fighting escalated all day long. Reynolds, considered by many to be one of the best generals in the Union Army, was killed in the late morning, and command of the First Corps passed to Major General Abner Doubleday. Yes, the same man who was credited with having invented the game of baseball. Heavy casualties were sustained by the Confederate Army during the day, a harbinger of things to come. Long used to inflicting bloody losses on advancing, attacking Union forces in defensive masterpieces, the Southern Army found itself in the unusual position of being the aggressor and having to outmaneuver, dislodge, and outfight dug-in Union soldiers defending their position with massed rifle and artillery fire. The results were much the same as the Federal troops and their officers as experienced in the war up until then. Nonetheless, the somewhat outnumbered Union line became overextended under steadily increasing Confederate pressure and began to collapse, first on the right flank under General Frank Barlow, who was captured, and then in a cascade of further retreats and collapses along the arc. By this time of the day, Meade's most able and trusted subordinate, General Winfield Hancock, arrived on the scene with instructions from Meade to take overall command of the battlefield until he could get there. Meade had dispatched him first and foremost to assess the situation, the lay of the land, as Meade came north with the rest of the Army of the Potomac to determine whether the position at and around Gettysburg was a fit place to do battle with the Army of Northern Virginia. As Hancock assessed the situation, the Union forces under Doubleday and Howard were engaged in a relatively orderly retreat through Gettysburg and out the southern side of the town to the formidable ridges now occupied by a single Union division under General Adolf Steinwehr, which had been held in reserve. Hancock concluded, in his words to General Howard, that, quote, I think this is the strongest position by nature, upon which to fight a battle that I ever saw. Unquote. Howard agreed, and both were to be proved right. What Hancock and Howard saw was a formation of ridges and hills that created what can and has been described as an upside-down fish hook, or it might be described as a sort of question mark in reverse, with the long side on the left, as you look at it on a map or in your mind's eye. At the bottom of this upside-down fish hook was a treeless hill known as Little Round Top that would be a pivotal site of desperate fighting the following day. The kind of treeless hilltop on which a general could mount artillery that could bombard everything around it for miles, including the no-man's land of pastures and fields between the Union line and the Confederates, through which General Pickett's men would pass two days later. Moving north, up the long end of the fish hook was a nearly continuous ridge, aptly named for what was going to come as Cemetery Ridge. These bluffs and low heights looked west across farmlands and fields, and then a wooded ridge known as Seminary Ridge, which would shortly be occupied by Confederate General A.P. Hill's Corps. At the arc topping the fish hook, side by side, were Cemetery Hill and Culp's Hill, which curled down, pointing now south again to complete 
the fish hook. Hancock and Howard could envision the occupation of these heights by the retreating Union forces coming down from Gettysburg in the north and the approaching bulk of the Army of the Potomac under Meade coming up from the south. The only question was whether the Union Army could get there first and occupy the heights before the Confederates. Looking through his spyglass and a map, Robert E. Lee could see the same thing and sent an order in the late afternoon directing Ewell to quickly take the cemetery hill if practicable, quote unquote, in the late afternoon of day one. In the past, Lee had also granted Ewell and Longstreet wide discretion and it had paid off, but at Gettysburg it would have disastrous results. The whole command and control of the culmination of the Confederate campaign centered on Lee, who would be exposed in the coming days. Quote, the whole affair was disjointed, unquote, Lee's aide-de-camp Walter Taylor said of Gettysburg years later. Quote, there was an utter absence of accord in the movements of the several commands, unquote. Thus, once again, as he had done with Stuart, Lee gave Ewell great discretion and, once again, the delegation of this authority would have fateful consequences. No matter how tired Ewell's corps may have been from the fighting earlier in the day, the taking of Cemetery Hill that afternoon would have punched a hole in the entire Union line and made it untenable. It didn't happen. Ewell declined to make the offensive and take the position as Lee had, quote, suggested. It's perhaps noteworthy that Ewell had formerly been a division commander under Stonewall Jackson before his death. Jackson had been the opposite of Lee in this sense. Jackson issued blunt, peremptory orders to his subordinates that left no room for doubt or discretion and that he expected to be instantly carried out. In any event, Howard's and Doubleday's corps joined Steinware's reserve division that evening on Cemetery Hill and dug in. Cemetery Hill would never be taken during the battle that followed. Meade would make his headquarters for the battle just behind Cemetery Hill itself, and from its heights, Meade and his staff could observe almost the entire Union line and much of the opposing Confederates as well. In the late afternoon and evening of July 1st, the remaining Confederate and Union forces hastened to the field, all except Jeb Stuart, who was only now hearing of the opening clash of the titanic battle to follow, and a day and a half's ride away. The Union's 2nd, 3rd, 5th, 6th, and 12th Corps all moved into position, with Meade setting up his headquarters near Cemetery Hill. All in all, the Army of the Potomac would commit some 93,000 men to the struggle. The Army of Northern Virginia would count about 72,000. The Confederate Army arrayed itself in lines roughly parallel to those of Meade's army, about a mile away. But in this battle, the Union would have the tight interior lines, while the Confederate line from start to finish was some five miles long. Longstreet's corps arrived throughout the day on July 2nd, culminating with the arrival of General George Pickett's division late in the afternoon. Longstreet formed the southern right flank, facing the long end of the Union fish hook. 
Conversely, the extreme Union left flank on Cemetery Ridge, which petered out just north of Little Round Top. A.P. Hill's Corps also faced Cemetery Ridge to Longstreet's left. Ewell's Corps faced the extreme right flank of the Union forces on Culp's Hill, arranged in an arc from the 1 to 3 o'clock position on the short end of the fishhook. By the end of the first day, there were spirited discussions between Longstreet and Lee about what to do next. Longstreet, who had previously advocated defense, you'll remember, both tactical and strategic defense in May, had carried on a continuous conversation with Lee throughout the invasion, according to his memoirs. He had reluctantly but loyally agreed to the decision to strategically take the offensive, but held on tightly to the idea of remaining on the tactical defensive. Now a word about these terms. We've used them before in our podcast, but in the sense of this campaign, the strategic means the decision whether the army will be bringing the war to the enemy, including movement such as invasion, occupation of important military, economic, or other positions, or remaining static, or even retreating, protecting your own assets, and warding off attacks. The tactical presumes the actual engagement of two opposing armies on the battlefield or theater of battle. When one army takes the initiative to start the battle, advance to dislodge the opponent, flank them, envelop them, assault them, or to adopt a defensive posture of remaining more or less static, digging in, improvising during the attack by moving reserves to weak points, and so on. The American Civil War had taught military commanders over the past two years that the advent of the rifle, together with entrenching or taking cover behind natural or man-made barriers, such as a fence or stone wall, and even artillery, could inflict devastating casualties on tightly packed advancing infantry with muzzle-loading rifles and bayonets. This was the standard technique of the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia, which was often, at least initially, facing a significantly larger opponent in numbers and resources. The Confederates would often follow a robust tactical defense with a spine-shivering counterattack with bayonets or cavalry on a demoralized, shattered Union formation caught out in the open without cover or entrenchments, sending them into a rout. Longstreet felt he had Lee's agreement in the advance into Pennsylvania that the Army of Northern Virginia would basically maneuver itself into a position where the Army of the Potomac would have to attack and the usual results would obtain once again. In other words, Longstreet thought Lee agreed that while the Army of Northern Virginia was taking the strategic offensive by invading, it would adopt the tactical defensive when it inevitably encountered the Army of the Potomac, probably protecting a city such as Harrisburg, Baltimore, or even the capital Washington, D.C. Imagine Longstreet's dismay when Lee announced that, no, he would not wait for the Army of the Potomac to attack him, he would take the tactical offensive. Longstreet felt, like Hancock had concluded earlier, that the fishhook of bluffs and hills was a most unfavorable position for the Confederates to attack and said so to Lee. 
Longstreet proposed that the Army of Northern Virginia decline any further attack after the first day and sweep around the southern end of the fishhook and proceed to place itself between the Army of the Potomac and Washington, as Stuart had already done, with a far weaker force. The Army of the Potomac would have to attack, and the Army of Northern Virginia could find a much more favorable battlefield for its defensive than Gettysburg. Inexplicably, Lee rejected Longstreet's idea again. He declared that no, the enemy was here close at hand, and now was the time to strike. Longstreet's idea seems so sensible and logical that it's difficult to understand why Lee did not adopt it or even think of it himself. For this, Lee has to be charged with the overall defeat at Gettysburg and the opportunity to win the war for the Confederacy in 1863. This time, it would be the Union Army dug in, in entrenched positions, rifle and artillery blazing, slaughtering advancing rebel troops in the open. to attack left Longstreet downcast and pessimistic and may explain his lethargy the following day. Day two of the battle saw Meade and his army dug into an extremely strong defensive position that made any frontal assault a daunting proposition indeed. Meade was content to hold his ground and imp- improvise or react to the impending and inevitable assault by the Army of Northern Virginia, which suited Meade well. And now is probably as good a time as any to talk about the commander of the Union Army in this most important of all American battles. Meade was a professional soldier who had been in the Army virtually all his adult life. He attended West Point and graduated in 1835, 19th in his class. He served briefly in the Seminole Wars and later in the Mexican War. When the Civil War began, he held the rank of captain in the regular army. He offered his services to Pennsylvania and was given the rank of Brigadier General of Volunteers. He was badly wounded during the Peninsular Campaign under McClellan in 1862 and had to be relieved of command for a time while he recovered from his wounds in Philadelphia. Meade returned and was present at the Battle of Fredericksburg, after which he was given command of the Fifth Corps in the Army of the Potomac. He was present at the disaster of Chancellorsville, but he handled his own Fifth Corps quite well, covering the retreat of the Army. As I mentioned, it was after Chancellorsville, only a few days before the Battle of Gettysburg, that he was surprisingly appointed commander of the Army of the Potomac. 
Meade is recorded in history by his contemporaries as a prickly personality. His nickname among his subordinates was, quote, Old Snapping Turtle. He had a quick temper and a sharp tongue. He could be stubborn with subordinates and superiors alike. He detested armchair amateur generalship by political generals or civilians without military experience or education, dismissing them often with sarcasm. He reserved special contempt and loathing for the press, which he could barely tolerate. He was not loved by his staff or comrades, but he was respected. Meade was a sound, if unspectacular, general, who would not lose a battle by blunders or mistakes. He knew what he was doing. He expected professionalism and sound judgment by his subordinates. He avoided risks, but knew how to take full advantage of favorable military situations when they presented themselves. He would never have been a suitable commander for the entire Union cause, as Ulysses Grant would shortly become, because, among other things, he lacked the vision and political acumen that a Grant, or later an Eisenhower, would have in working with the civilian government or other strong-willed, opinionated generals. Nonetheless, at this fateful juncture in history, his steady hand and sound military judgment was exactly what was needed. So on the second day of this battle, Meade would not be goaded into a precipitate attack or lured out of his strong positions. He would bide his time, all the while strengthening his positions little by little as the hours ticked by after dawn. Incredibly, Meade was allowed nearly the whole second day to further prepare his army to repulse the Confederate attack by the unimaginable lethargy of Generals Longstreet, exacerbated by similarly belated action by Jubal Early and Johnston on the Union right. Lee's plan to dislodge and defeat the Army of the Potomac was fairly straightforward and held great promise. He would not, of course, initiate a frontal attack on the Union forces atop the hills and bluffs of the Fishhook, but rather would move around the Union left, enveloping it with successive division-level attacks against Sickles' Third Corps, which anchored the Union left. There were no Union formations to Sickles' left. He held the end of the line just north of Little Round Top. Once Sickles' left flank had been routed, Longstreet's divisions would continue up the long end of the fishhook, enveloping successive divisions in a cascade of routes until the Union flank was rolled up and broken. That would place the marauding columns of Longstreet's corps in the rear of much of the Union army, which would be fixed in place by a simultaneous attack on the Union right flank, on Culp's Hill, the short end of the fishhook, by two divisions of Ewell's corps. That attack was supposed to be carried out by Generals Early and Johnston, but not with any real vigor until Longstreet's flanking and enveloping maneuver had begun and got well underway. Otherwise, the casualties that would be sustained by these diversionary frontal attacks could be substantial indeed. Longstreet procrastinated in his attack until four o'clock in the afternoon, waiting for two straggling divisions just arriving that day to get into position. To deceive the Yankees observing him, Longstreet engaged in some marching and countermarching to distract the enemy 
as to the real intentions of his maneuver. All this frittered away time. In the meantime, General Sickles moved forward from his position on Cemetery Ridge toward what he th- saw as higher ground ahead of them, closer to the Confederate positions. This was obscured from Lee and Longstreet, but the result was that when Longstreet began his attack, instead of skirting around the left flank of Sickles' corps in an enveloping maneuver that avoided contact until the moment of truth, his divisions marched straight into the Third Corps, and a brawl ensued with heavy casualties on all sides. Devil's Den, the Wheat Field, the Peach Orchard, Coderoy's Farm, and Little Round Top itself. These all became death traps and killing fields, with desperate, often hand-to-hand fighting late that afternoon and into the evening, battles to the knife and to the death. But instead of a classic sweeping maneuver in which Sickles' corps would have been enveloped, cut off, and destroyed, as Lee had contemplated, Longstreet's belated attack degenerated into a series of bloody frontal engagements. Meade rushed detachments and reinforcements to strengthen that flank and securing the outermost position, Little Round Trop, where artillery could be wheeled into position on its treeless summit that commanded the southern part of the battlefield and rake any approaching infantry. Nonetheless, parts of Sickles' corps, particularly in the peach orchard and the wheat field, were decimated that evening, cut to pieces and effectively negated as a fighting command thereafter. Sickles himself was hit by a cannonball and had his leg amputated that very day. The result was basically a pyrrhic victory for Longstreet that ultimately had not improved the southern position at all. In fact, Meade would continue to send reinforcements once Little Roundtrop was firmly in his hands, making his extreme left flank longer and more stout than they had been before the fight began. On the opposite flank, the frontal attacks on Culp's Hill by Early and Johnston were aided by the fact that most of Slocum's 12th Corps, which had been there, had been rushed by Meade to Sickles' aid, leaving only a brigade to defend the hill under General George Green. Yet this attack started even later, at 7 o'clock in the evening, and once again time favored the Union. Green had made the most of the time he was granted by the Confederates, personally supervising strong fortifications, breastworks, and entrenchments on the base and summit of Culp's Hill. In spite of overwhelming numerical, sur- in spite of overwhelming numerical superiority, therefore, Green's men repulsed the Confederate divisions eventually ceding only the lower defenses, but remaining in control of the summit of Culp's Hill by nightfall, inflicting punishing casualties on the rebels throughout. It was all so familiar, but now the shoe was on the other foot, with the Confederates taking most of the casualties. In summary, on the second day of the engagement, using their interior lines and much shorter distances, Meade was able to patch holes and improvise throughout the late afternoon and evening. The remarkably slow pace of the southern offensive allowed him and the Army of the Potomac to prepare ever more stout defenses, something that would be even more telling on the following day. On the Confederate side, the well-conceived and sound flanking maneuver envisioned by Lee was botched by Longstreet, just as Ewell had botched the taking of Cemetery Hill the day before. 
Yet there was still a possibility that the Union army could be defeated yet. Jeb Stuart's powerful cavalry had finally arrived in the afternoon and could now be put to work. That forlorn and beautiful tune is, of course, Taps. Uh, I decided I would have that tune played during this podcast because it was actually uh, arranged, I would say composed, during the Civil War by a brigadier, Union Brigadier General Daniel Butterfield. Uh, his arrangement was actually a variation on an earlier uh, lights out um, bugle call known as the Scott Tattoo. But uh, the tune became immediately so popular it spread throughout the Union Army and also the Confederate Army and was p- played then and now for lights out. Uh, it's also, of course, played uh, at many military funerals conducted in the United States. It's also played at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier um, every day, if you ever go to Arlington Cemetery. In any event, for those of you who are not American listeners, uh, you might not know that tune. For Americans, you'd have to have grown up under a rock never to have heard it before. But in any event, it's a beautiful tune, uh, and let's continue with our story. Some random thoughts here. First, for those of you who have listened to our podcast on Königgratz, which took place only a year later in central Bohemia, the position of the Union Army is remarkably similar to that of the Austrian Army under Benedict, and yet the results will be dramatically different, due, in my opinion, to the superior competence and management of the American general. Both armies found themselves in excellent defensive positions on heights, backed by dense infantry formations, artillery, and reserve cavalry, and facing an approaching enemy bound on flanking and enveloping their position. The comparison between the two battles is an interesting one. The second thought is about the loss of Stonewall Jackson at the Battle of Chancellorsville a few months earlier. Many military historians and commentators consider Jackson one of the most brilliant tactical generals in American military history. If Lee was the consummate strategist with the master plan, Jackson was his executioner, par excellence. In particular, at the amazing Battle of Chancellorsville, it was Jackson whose 
breathtaking, stunning envelopment of the Union right wing, bringing it to utter destruction in a maneuver that is still studied to this day, made the battle the crushing victory it was. His military instincts and audacity were unequaled by other Southern commanders. An extremely religious and conservative man, he was beloved by his troops, whom he often inspired into great feats of marching and fighting. Stonewall Jackson might well have been the difference at Chancellorsville, but I think his death and absence from Gettysburg most certainly made a huge difference in the execution of the Confederate attack. It's impossible to imagine Jackson procrastinating and delaying the flanking attack undertaken by Longstreet or even the feeble belated attacks by Ewell's division on Culp's Hill. Jackson surely would have carried these attacks with whatever men he had at his disposal or died in the attempt. He was that kind of a general. Lee needed that kind of a general. He didn't have one that day, and the battle was probably lost on July 2nd. 1863. Third, had Jeb Stuart's hard-hitting, fast-moving cavalry been on the right flank of Longstreet's corps, what damage might have been done? Longstreet failed to flank Sickles' corps on its left, but 10,000 horse would have whipped around the flank with terrifying ease, like the last man in a game of crack the whip. What might have been had Stuart's cavalry galloped around the left flank of Sickles' Third Corps and closed in on his rear, while Stonewall Jackson, or even an aggressive Longstreet, fixed Sickles' Corps in position to be massacred and overrun can easily be imagined. Day three dawned with the first Union attack. General Green on Culp's Hill was not satisfied with merely holding the summit. Now, with artillery support, a bombardment opened up upon the Confederates below, pounding them and goading them into another failed attack up the hill, which failed again at 11 o'clock in the morning. Meade had considered carefully what Lee might do next, and concluded that he would probably attack in the one place he had not visited so far, the center of the line on Cemetery Ridge, which was held by his most trusted subordinate, none other than Winfield Hancock, the same Winfield Hancock whom Meade had sent ahead to take control of the battlefield on the first day. Together they would prepare a nasty surprise for Lee if he did so. Lee had planned to attempt basically the same maneuver as the day before, with Longstreet again attempting to flank the Union left wing, but now Little Round Top was fortified with artillery, and the Union line stretched below and behind this anchor so as to make a flanking maneuver all but impossible. The fighting on Culp's Hill went badly, and so it was decided, indeed, to attempt to crack the heart of the Union defense at the northern end of Cemetery Ridge. Lee personally rode to Longstreet's command post, where he found him organizing another attempt at flanking the Union left at Little Round Top. Lee countermanded Longstreet's orders and instructed Longstreet to have Pickett's division, bolstered by six additional infantry brigades, storm the Federal position after an artillery bombardment that would concentrate all the fury and might of the Confederate artillery on the Union Second Corps. Pickett's division of Virginians had not yet been in battle and were fresh. 
their attack would be preceded by a tremendous artillery barrage by virtually the entire Confederate battery. Longstreet was flabbergasted. He had witnessed the decision to attack the entrenched heights below Gettysburg with dismay. Now, against all his instincts and military judgment, he was being ordered to send one of his crack infantry divisions straight into a frontal assault on the very center of the Union line. Once again, it took all morning to assemble the assault force and move them into position. At 1 o'clock p.m., the shelling began and continued for about two hours, perhaps one of the most thunderous bombardments of the Civil War by an estimated 175 Confederate guns. But the Confederate artillery was not able to really soften the Union entrenched positions atop the ridge. After some time, Union artillery answered, but then fell silent again, conserving ammunition and encouraging the false belief among the Confederate commanders that they had effectively silenced the Union guns with their bombardment and that the way was now cleared for an infantry assault. Pickett's charge is the stuff of legend. When the moment arrived, according to Longstreet's memoirs, Pickett asked Longstreet, quote, General, shall I advance? Longstreet was so overcome with emotion, believing he was ordering thousands of men to a senseless death, could not reply. Quote, the effort to speak the order failed, and I could only indicate it by an affirmative bow, Longstreet wrote in his memoirs. Quote, he accepted the duty with seeming confidence of success, leaped on his horse, and rode gaily to his command. Pickett's charge ranks with the charge of the Light Brigade, or Napoleon's release of the Old Guard at Waterloo, in drama and futility. The words of a French general, Pierre Bosquet, who witnessed the British Light Brigade's assault on massed Russian artillery, seem as apt here as they were a decade earlier at Balaclava. C'est magnifique, mais ce n'est pas la guerre, c'est de la folie. And translated, that means, it's magnificent, but it's not war, it's madness. Approximately 13,000 Confederate soldiers advanced out from the cover of the woods on Seminary Ridge into the open country separating them from the Union line. Across farmland and fields they proceeded in a magnificent spectacle until they reached the Emmitsburg Road running perpendicular to their line of march. After crossing the road they soon received fierce artillery flanking fire from right and left from Cemetery Hill and Little Round Top. Then as they began the ascent up the hill, the heretofore silent Union artillery on the heights belched grape shot and canister, about 80 guns, with devastating consequences. Rifle fire from Union soldiers rained down on them. Amazingly, some of Pickett's men actually reached the Union lines at the top of the hill before being cut to pieces and thrown back. A bloody retreat ensued under withering fire for the mile or so it took Pickett's men to get back to the safety of the woods. Pickett's division 
and those who marched with them took 50% casualties in this assault, losing some 6,000 men in the space of an hour and destroying the division as a fighting unit. The scene was so appalling that for once Lee lost his composure, riding his white horse up to the retreating infantry and exclaiming in his grief, This is all my fault. It was too much for you. In the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. As he died to make men holy, let us live to make men free. His truth is marching on. It's hard to argue with Lee's own assessment. The insanity of this attack was remarked a century later when in 1957 retired British Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery and then President Dwight Eisenhower visited the battlefield. Eisenhower actually lived at his private home in Gettysburg right next to the battlefield. Uh, If you go there, you can still see it to this day. Montgomery described Pickett's assault as quote, monstrous, and that Lee should have been, quote, sacked for his performance in the battle. Eisenhower didn't disagree, but tactfully remarked that perhaps some of the Civil War generals might have disagreed with their tactics in World War II. As it turned out, Meade had been the right general at the right time for this particular battle. He had repulsed the seemingly invincible Army of Northern Virginia with heavy losses and held his position. Yet Meade would not escape a certain amount of ignominy, not for his performance at and during the battle, but for failing to completely annihilate the Army of Northern Virginia during its, quote, retreat back into Virginia. It's hard to blame Meade, though the consequence would be that the war would go on for nearly two more years, but let's look at what really happened. Lee quickly reassembled his army in a defensive position along Seminary Ridge, facing the Union Army, and on July 4th dared Meade to attack him. He now adopted the tactical defensive posture that Longstreet had thought Lee was going to do all along in his invasion of Pennsylvania. Had Meade attacked, the possibility was there for a reversal of fortune, Meade would have found himself in the same position so many Union generals had found themselves in in battles before him, and that Lee had experienced the past two days. The rifle and entrenched positions made defensive tactics superior to all but the most careful offensive tactics of flanking and encirclement. Meade would not take the bait and waste his army attempting to drive Lee off the heights of Seminary Ridge in a series of picket charges. 
Furthermore, the Union Army had also absorbed some 23,000 casualties in the three days of fighting. It was not fit enough to execute any rapid or surreptitious encircling movement that would have doomed the Army of Northern Virginia. Lee and his army slowly, carefully evacuated their positions on July 5th, heading back toward the safety of Virginia. Meade followed slowly and carefully. Rains lashed the two armies for days following the battle, swelling the Potomac River and momentarily trapping the Army of Northern Virginia on the northern side with no means of quick escape had Meade attacked, but he didn't. A more daring and energetic commander might have risked all on a battle at that point and perhaps ended the war. Meade chose to husband his army for the time being, no doubt with memories of numerous, often disastrous attacks on this army, like Bull Run and Fredericksburg. He had only been in command for a week, so Meade did not aggressively attempt to prevent his retreat, and Lee and his army forded the Potomac and continued their retreat into Virginia, thereafter breaking contact. The mounting indignation in Washington by Lincoln and Halleck at Meade's supposed timidity failed to take into account the residual capacity of the Army of Northern Virginia and its commanders to inflict another devastating defeat in a defensive battle. Unfortunately for Meade, his perceived failure to eliminate Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia in the aftermath of Gettysburg has obscured his rightful place in history. Many people think it was Grant who defeated Lee at Gettysburg. Few people, but military historians, know the name Gordon Meade today. Yet his professionalism and tactical skill saved the day, and perhaps saved the Union. The contrast with Field Marshal Benedict at Königgratz could not be more remarkable. So let's talk about the aftermath. The Confederacy would never again embark on an offensive campaign into the North to attempt a once-and-for-all battle to end the war. Instead, it reverted to the defensive again, but with ever-dwindling resources and manpower. Lee and his army would hold out for two more years, but they would slowly be ground down, outmaneuvered, and eventually outfought at the Battle of the Wilderness, Spotsylvania, Petersburg, and finally, Appomattox. Meade would continue as commander of the Army of the Potomac for the duration of the war, but he would have to endure the supervision of Ulysses S. Grant, who was given command over all Union forces by Lincoln shortly thereafter, but chose to make his headquarters with the Army of the Potomac. It's a credit to the old snapping turtle that he continued to serve for the duration of the war with dignity under Grant's command. Interestingly, however, for those critics of Meade, Grant would not quickly trap and crush the Army of Northern Virginia either. It would take two years of flanking maneuvers and, quote, meat-grinding, continuous fighting tactics with occasional pitched battles until Lee surrendered in April 1865. In the flush of the victory of the Army of the Potomac at Gettysburg, Halleck and Lincoln seemed to have forgotten and become a bit carried away, as Lee and Davis had done after Chancellorsville. But where the Confederacy plunged into defeat within two months of their greatest victory, 
Meade prevented the Union from perhaps doing the same. Most historians consider Gettysburg to be the turning point of the war. Personally, I think it could have been the turning point if the Confederacy had won. But it was not for the Union. These two field armies were about the same size. The Union Army is estimated to have been about 93,000 and the Army of Northern Virginia about 70,000. Both armies endured about 23,000 casualties each in the fighting. It was not a decisive defeat like Sedan in 1870 with a complete encirclement and surrender of an entire field army nor even a rout like Chancellorsville or Königgratz. Rather, Gettysburg was more of a straightforward brawl because of the clumsy execution of Lee's tactical plan to flank and envelop the Union Army. Had Lee managed to envelop Sickles' Third Corps on July 2nd and roll up the Union position on Cemetery Ridge, however, routing the Army of the Potomac once more, the results might have been so devastating as to end the war. No doubt the Army of the Potomac would have retreated toward Washington and its fortifications, exposing Harrisburg, Baltimore, and Philadelphia to occupation. Lee's aura of invincibility might have persuaded the border states to join the Confederacy, or the Copperheads in Congress to take control and agree to a separation from the Confederacy in 1863. Interestingly, in the South, Gettysburg was not initially regarded as the defeat that it came to be seen as by later historians, but rather just a setback. The invasion had not succeeded in bringing the North to its knees, but it had spared Northern Virginia from the depredations of an occupying army, plunder and seizure of its crops and livestock, and the daily peril of another federal offensive to take Richmond. The fall of Vicksburg in the West cutting off Louisiana, Arkansas, and Texas from the Confederacy, followed the defeat at Gettysburg. Gordon Meade, the old snapping turtle, deserves a high station in the annals of American military history. He truly bent the arc of history that led to the restoration of the American Union and the end of the institution of slavery throughout the Republic. (laughs) 